We now return to the examination of Judas the betrayer to learn more about the heart of the hypocrite and the almost Christian who was discovered in that garden on that fateful day. This is the third sermon in a five-part mini-series tracing the passion of the Lord Christ and his victory over sin, death, and the entire secular realm of men and nations. We're all coming, reading, coming from the Psalms, Psalm 55, Psalm 55, the first 16 verses, the first 16 stanzas, Psalm 55, verses 1 through 16, Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the psalmist David says this, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, and I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go about it, upon the walls thereof, mischief also and sorrow in the midst of it. Wickedness is in the midst thereof, deceit and guile depart not from their streets. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. Let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. The evangelist Matthew in Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 36 to verse 50 by the same spirit that moved David so does Matthew write Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane and saith unto the disciples Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. 
And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. And he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now throughout scripture, God warns against the self-deception of a false conversion. Being deceived is one thing, being deceived is bad enough, but being self-deceived is far more destructive and can result in damnation. And God warns, therefore, by commandment, by admonition, and especially by these historical examples of the damage that self-deception can inflict upon an individual, not only in this life, but especially eternally. Self-deception is a most dangerous kind of deception since it causes blindness in an individual. Blindness in an individual disables that individual from accurately examining him or herself in light of the word of God. Now both Peter and Paul are very forthcoming with the warning, the the grievous warning of self-examination in order for their people to avoid being self-deceived. And notice in 2 Corinthians 13.5, which was our call to worship this morning, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. In other words, examine yourselves, prove your own selves, look into the depth of your heart, know ye not your own selves, lest ye be reprobates. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, notice the warning, beware, Be aware, lest ye also, my beloved, my brothers, my sisters, my congregation, I'm warning you, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So there was that examination. We have to be examining ourselves daily. Jesus also very clearly warns that an outward show, an outward ritual, or an outward profession, without the inward dwelling of God the Holy Spirit, unto resurrecting the soul and the spirit and reorienting the mind to the things of God, he says that this outward show of religion or profession or ritual is not necessarily a reliable proof of conversion. Notice what he says in one of the most frightening passages of Holy Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, notice, that calling him Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? 
and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Not note, note here. Not he knew them, now he doesn't know them. He says, I never knew you. You were never mine. I was never yours. I never knew you. Therefore, depart from me, ye that work lawlessness, iniquity. So we learn from the historical kings of Israel also, and the kings of Judah, that although some of them were condemned by the testimony of Scripture as being evil, they had an outward sign, an outward showing of being Israelites, and they even worshipped Jehovah. Yet they were not of the elect. They were self-deceived by their own hearts, failing to honestly examine themselves before the bar of God's law word. It also seems that many of those that are closest to the truth, as we shall see with Judas and with Demas, may not actually be the Lord's people. And Judas is that perfect example. Judas was near to the truth, so near to the truth, as well as so near to the Lord himself, yet he remained detached from the operation of God's grace. Simply by being near to the gospel of God does not necessarily mean one is near to the God of the gospel. I'll say that again. Simply by being near to the gospel of God does not necessarily mean that one is near to the God of the gospel. In other words, an outward affiliation with the things of God, the knowledge of God and the works of God does not automatically translate into a saving relationship with Christ. Now the great Puritan John Flavel, and I admonish you, if you have never read the Puritans, especially the Puritan John Flavel, probably the easiest Puritan to read, I admonish you, I implore you, I beg you, start reading the Puritans for their rich understanding of Holy Scripture. Now this Puritan, John Flavel, one of my favorites, in conjunction with so many of his contemporaries, explored this frightening reality with awe and wonder. Because during the days of the Puritans, everybody went to church. It was a law, in fact. You couldn't stay away from church, otherwise you get fined, you get put into the stocks. So everybody was in church, but not everybody was part of the church. In other words, they were not all children of God. And so in order to warn those that were as Judas or as Demas of the impending danger of not examining themselves in light of God's word, they would seek to admonish them to examine themselves. And this theme was repeated throughout Puritan New England since everyone seemed to be churchgoers and the followers of Jesus. Contained in this exposition, in this sermon, we find much of Flavel's admonishments. So in the 55th Psalm, David prophesies of the very act of betrayal and treason against the Lord precisely by those who seem to be regenerated. So here we find the psalmist is speaking as if he was Christ himself. This is most certainly a messianic psalm. David is speaking as Christ would be speaking. Now of course David was dealing with this too, but this is an anticipation of the Christ. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, my equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. Someone that was close to him. Notice what he says. We took sweet counsel together. We were buddies. At least it seemed as if we were taking sweet counsel together. We were walking into the house of God in company. We went to worship together. These words emphasize the depth 
of this betrayal and also reading into it the depth of the bitterness that the psalmist is speaking and the depth of bitterness that Christ had to bear. So these words emphasize the depth of bitterness in the betrayal of a friend, not an enemy, but a friend. And it is in no doubt speaking of the betrayal by Judas against the Lord Christ. In addition to highlighting Judas, this psalm seems to be also speaking generally as well. These words and the experience of betrayal, which is the worst kind of hurt, may also be applied to the betrayal that God experienced by Adam's rebellion. We may even go so far as to include Demas and so many others who seem to be apostles and and disciples, but were not. Men like Hymenaeus, Philetus and Alexander the coppersmith are of that company. Notice the betrayal cited in the psalm is not from a stranger. That is essential to understand, but rather from a trusted friend, someone who you get really close to, someone in close proximity. And this is the worst kind of deception. This is the worst kind of betrayal. And that's why it's so hurtful. And that's what Jesus had to go through. And that's what makes betrayal so painfully bitter because it comes from an individual that acted like and was perceived as a true trusted friend. And so we have displayed before us a doctrinal assertion. In one sense, Psalm 55 has Judas Iscariot in view. In another sense, perhaps Demas. In another sense, Adam. But in a more general manner, we can also know that this statement is for all of those who profess to know Christ, but indeed are his betrayers. Notice the word in verse 15, the word them. It is the plural of the preceding verses. Let death seize upon them. Not so much him, but them. A plural word. And let them go down quick into hell. All the betrayers. All the hypocrites. All those who are self-deceived. Let them go down quick into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. So this indicates that there's more than just one betrayer in view. It was not only Judas that conspired to deliver the Lord into the hands of wicked men, but also the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. They were all party to the offense. They were all the betrayers. They were all serpents and scorpions in a real sense, all devils in their own right. Now consider the way the scriptures identify Judas and all those that betray the Christ. First, notice his name. Judas. The name Judas should be used symbolically of every believer. He was not an enemy, but rather he was a friend, a familiar friend. Secondly, Judas showed no outward hatred. No outward hatred. No one knew that he hated the Christ. He was perhaps cordial, even kind, probably even friendly. He was hanging out with the disciples. Thirdly, he did not speak as to magnify himself. No one said, you know, that Judas, he's real proud. He's a real proud man. I know, you know, every time you see a cartoon, a a Bible cartoon for the children, Judas is always depicted with a dark beard and his beady little eyes. No way. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Perhaps he was very humble. Perhaps there was in him a thread of humility or some sort of outward show of meekness. Fourthly, According to the psalmist, this Judas 
was considered an equal. He was not looked upon as a lower class citizen. He walked right alongside the Lord, right alongside the disciples, with the disciples. Fifthly, he was even considered for his counsel. And according to the psalmist, he was even identified as a guide. The psalmist states that they conversed together. They took sweet counsel together. They most likely discussed the things of God. They talked about God. They talked about the things of God. They talked about the kingdom. For these are all the sweetnesses of all human existence to speak about the kingdom of God. We read also, six, that they walked in the house of God. They went to worship. They walked into the house of God in company. They went together. They said, come, let us worship together. And they worshiped together. As Flavel puts it, perhaps men would say, look, these are Flavel's words, look, here cometh the company of the brethren. Oh, how they are always together. They are inseparable. There we see James and John and Peter and Judas and Bartholomew. Whenever I see the one, I know the other is close at hand. They always walk in the same company. Look how devoted to the cause of Christ and to each other they are. That's what they saw. Hidden in the man's heart, however, there was treachery. In this case, what was outwardly was not at all what was true inwardly. Like the Pharisees, these betrayers had cleansed the outside of the cup, but inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. They were whited sepulchers. Notice, if we look to the New Testament, God gives us a description of the traitor in verse 47. Judas, one of the twelve. One of the company. Each of the accounts of the Gospels record this amazing fact, an incredible fact, that Judas, it doesn't say just Judas, Judas. In other words, the Spirit is saying Judas, and I want to make this perfectly clear, he was one of the twelve. To write these inspired words must have placed the disciples in wonderment, even consternation. One of the twelve, when Matthew was writing this, he had to put one of the twelve, because he too was amazed that Judas was one of the twelve, yet for the longest time, within the depth of his heart, he was a betrayer. John's account describes even more incredible intimacy since Judas knew of the Lord's most intimate and beloved place of prayer. He knew exactly where to find the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where it began, it is ending. It begins in Eden, the Garden of God, where Adam falls. It ends in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Eden will be reestablished by the resurrected Christ. And Judas knew of that place. He knew exactly where to find Christ. It seems plausible that Judas and Christ might have even prayed at that place together with others. This was a most intimate relationship. And what is even more astonishing is that Jesus took Judas into his company with full knowledge that he was the betrayer. But even with that knowledge, the betrayal was still a bitter pill. Now the gospel associates five particulars concerning Judas. Firstly, his name Judas. Judas of the tribe of Judah. The same lineage as as Christ. His surname, Iscariot. Now the Hebrew indicates here that his surname meant a man of the city. He was a man of the city. He's looking for the city of God. He's looking to establish the city of God of the tribe of Judah. How glorious 
a name. Notice his office. He held an ecclesiastical office. He was one of the twelve. He was one of the apostles. His offense? He was the betrayer. He was the one that betrayed Christ. His stewardship? He had a bag of money. He was the treasurer. In another place, the psalmist recounts his fellowship experience with the betrayal. In Psalm 41.9, notice, Yea, my known familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, had lifted up his heel against me. Now notice for a moment the treason itself, the description of the treason itself. Judas led an armed force to this intimate place of Christ while he was praying and gave them a signal, even a kiss, which is symbolic of reconciliation in order for the scribes and the chief priests to take him. Judas actively encouraged the scribes and the Pharisees to lay hands upon Christ and hold him fast. Notice, in Matthew 26, verse 48, Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. Judas was a man of a carnal mind. He was pliable, He was sinful. He had a devilish heart. He conspired with the multitude of wicked men in order to take the Lord of glory and bring him to his death. And that is what was happening. There was a conspiracy here. As Flavel describes it, Judas comes to Christ with both fraud and force. The curious particular of this entire fraudulent and forceful capture was unnecessary, for it was the harmless, spotless lamb who came to die in order to bring many to life and to establish his kingdom forever. Judas didn't have to do that. Christ was going on his own free will. But this was to show what men do, what men's desire is. To kill the Christ. Even today, they want to kill the witness of the church. They want to shut down the churches. They want to destroy Christianity. They want to make all religions equal and not elevate the one true religion and the one true Christ. So they come with fraud, with doctrines of of devils, and they come with force by the magistrates who are wicked, who decide that they are God. Flavel posits this doctrine. He says, It was the lot of our Lord and the purpose of God to have Christ betrayed into the hands of sinners in the manner of falsity and force by a pretended friend, even one of the twelve apostles. God sometimes brings this same bitter betrayal into our lives as well. In order to give us a taste of what the Lord had to endure, we will taste of these things. It is our lot. It is the position of the Christian to suffer with him. In this way, as the Apostle says, we fill up the sufferings of Christ our Lord in our own lives. Now for a moment, let's consider the character of Judas. And I think it's wise to consider who this man was. That we might be able to examine ourselves in light of who the man was so that we are not like that man. First, Judas was eminent by reason of the position in which he enjoyed. He was an apostle. He worked miracles. He had the bag of money. He was the trusted treasurer of the offerings that the apostles had gathered for the work of the ministry. He beheld Christ, not as the multitude beheld him afar off, but rather he beheld Christ up close and at all times. He ate with the Lord Jesus Christ. He slept He ate with the Lord Jesus Christ. He slept in the same camp with the Lord Jesus Christ. He went on the missionary trips with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
prayed, worshipped with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even before the Last Supper, he had the Passover Supper with the Lord Jesus Christ. In that three and a half years, he would eat with him, sleep with him, go on the missionary journeys with him. He was one of the twelve. He talked with Christ. He walked with Christ. He prayed with Christ. He even had his own feet washed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He even saw this Judas Iscariot had seen the majesty of God incarnate. He was able to listen to the, to the gracious doctrine of Christ directly from the mouth of the Savior. The perfect preacher. He's listening to the perfect preaching of the perfect Word of God. He was able to watch in amazement the express righteousness of His being as He lived obediently, perfectly obedient to the Father in every way, each and every day. In other words, Judas had first-hand experience of the prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ concerning His death and resurrection, yet in the garden... He betrays Jesus with a kiss. Obviously, Judas failed to understand, for his evil heart was darkened and his foolish mind was blinded, that this was God himself. He was in the presence of God incarnate, the promised Messiah. And for this act of betrayal, Judas was doomed, self-deceived into thinking that because of all this, he was one of the elect, because of all of his company, he was one of God's elect. Mark points out Judas' doom in Mark fourteen twenty one. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good had it been for that man if he had never been born. So what specifically did Judas do? Well, firstly, he betrayed the Lord for money. Judas sells the Lord for money. He asks the scribes and the elders. He asks the Pharisees, What will you give me? If I deliver him up to you, what will you give me? But not only does he sell him, he sells him at a low rate. He sells the Lord of glory for a meager amount. He marketed Christ, as so many do today, for filthy lucre, pastors, Marketing the gospel so that they can get money. The name it and the claim it, pastors, so they can get money. They sell out the Christ for filthy lucre. In his soul's hatred for God and low esteem for Christ, Judas agrees to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. As, as if that was enough. So the question then is this. How often do we betray the Lord for money or for, or for worldly possessions or for worldly pursuits? How often do we have the cart before the horse where Christ is an appendage, where the gospel advancement is something that we do in our spare time? It's not our core. It's not our focus. It's not our hope. It's not our desire. How often do we focus more on our monetary gain, our investments, our careers, our hobbies than we do for the things of God? And although Judas... And to the rulers, the 30 pieces might have seemed a mere pittance, but to God, it was a goodly price, as spoken by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 11:12. So they waited for my price, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter, a goodly price that it was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast it to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now consider why this act by Judas is so horrible. It is so horrible because Judas betrays our Lord not out of hatred or blind, ignorant zeal. As the Pharisees and elders 
did, but rather because he knew who Christ was. And he knew Christ did not deserve that death, that betrayal. He sinned against knowledge. Notice later he declares, I have betrayed innocent blood. He knew what he was doing. Moreover, Judas was not coerced. He wasn't tempted. No one came to him and, and tempted him. He was not sought after by the, the, the priests and, and, and the elders of Israel. He went on his own accord, following his devilish, carnal, reprobate mind, loving money, loving that idea of worldly goods, and he offered to betray Jesus Christ for money. And again, how often have we witnessed the gospel of Jesus Christ being twisted and perverted by so-called apostles for money? Judas's own heart, his own will, his own intentions precipitated the act of accusation against the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully culpable. Judas' wickedness was even found in his salutation. How deceptive. Hail, Master, my Lord. As Flavel says, it is here that the honor in the tongue covered over the poison of the heart. So what are some of the applications here? Well, Judas had a loose foundation. He was not watchful over his own heart. He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. He became like many, a byword in a proverb. He was a reproach to Christ with an air of religion. And like Demas, his foundation was carnally based. He had built his house upon the sand rather than upon the fortified rock. Secondly, Judas lived in secret sins. His heart still raced after deceit. Money, a notable standing with the establishment of the theologians of his day. Although he had an outward show of, of honor and sincerity, John tells us that he was a thief, a covetous man. Third, Judas's religion was hypocritical. His whole life was a lie. He didn't just become a hypocrite overnight when he met the Lord Jesus, when Jesus called him. His whole life was a lie. He was living a lie. How many people in church today are actually living a lie? They're going to church, they're doing the communion, they're doing the ritual, they're praying, maybe they're reading their Bible. Maybe, maybe they're in their own heart, they're sincere, but are they living a lie? Because their life's passion does not match what they're saying with their mouth. So Jesus was living a lie. He was not true, he was not true to himself, he was not sincere. He used his religion to accommodate selfish ends. He wanted to look good. He used his affiliation with Christ as a stirrup to accomplish his own ends. Number four, he was overconfident. Judas was one of the twelve. I read John Calvin. I love the Reformed faith. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher's kid. I'm this. I'm that. I'm, the, I'm one of the twelve. Obviously, I'm in. Obviously, Jesus loves me because I'm one of the twelve. Because I go to church, I don't miss church. Obviously, I must be one of the twelve. And as one of the twelve, I have something to boast of. Judas had something to boast of. When our Lord declared that one of the disciples was going to betray him, 
Everyone said, is it I? I'm concerned about myself. Is it I? 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 And then finally, the last one, Judas. Is it I? Thou hast well said. But the last one, unable to examine himself, unwilling to examine himself, and this shows that he was of the most, of the twelve, the most confident of his standing with God. Certainly it's not me, but since everyone else said it, maybe I'll just say it too. Maybe it is I. Solomon says, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six, Number five. Judas sold Christ for money. Like Demas, Judas loved the world and all of its wealth. You know, people today, they'll compass land and sea to get more money. They'll go out of their way. They'll spend more time to get more money, to develop a business, or to do this, or do that, or the other thing. But will they spend that energy to learn more about the kingdom? He sold Christ for money. He exchanged Christ for worldly wealth. Paul laments over the worldliness of Demas. In his letter to Timothy, notice what he says in 2 Timothy 4.9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, because Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Moreover, this teaches us how the world is a strong foe. It is our enemy. Not the world, but the worldliness of the world. The world belongs to us in order to cultivate it, to redeem it. But worldliness is our enemy. And it not only seeks to conquer us, it seeks to corrupt us. It strives to corrupt us. It strives to conquer us. It seeks dominion. Number six, Judas mistook gifts for grace. Judas had many gifts, but he was void of grace. Flavel cautions, he says, a drop of grace is better than a sea of gifts. Number seven, Judas and Demas had great zeal, but it was not a holy Christ-centered zeal. It was the zeal of a counterfeit. He had blind zeal. He had a zeal without deep conviction of sin, a zeal without knowledge. He also had partial zeal. And it's obvious that both Judas and Demas were not committed fully to the work of the kingdom. They were not sold out. You know, when Christ called the apostles when Peter was fishing and Christ called him he left his nets and he followed the Christ he didn't weigh it out he didn't say wait a minute I got a really good job here got a really good business here catching a lot of fish lately by the grace of God he might have been catching fish he left his nets he refocused He had a change of mind. He left his nets. So today, too many have partial zeal. They're not sold out. They say a whole lot of great things. I hear hear so so much pontification, it just makes me want to puke. It's it's just horrible. And they boast great things. But I want to know, what are they accomplishing? They say and do not. Don't tell me what you'll do. Show me what you'll do, because that speaks a whole lot louder than what you're saying. And then when they these kinds of people seek to accomplish something, they, they, they do it only when it's convenient. 
they are as the lukewarm Laodiceans, inconsistent, because inconsistency seems to be the norm for too many Christians today. Try to be consistent in something. Develop a habit of Christ first. As with personal piety, many might have a hot zeal against sin in their own opinion and in their own speech when it concerns others. Oh, we love that, don't we? So-and-so, look at that sin over there. Look at the sin there. And they have, oh, they're really, really righteous then when they're looking at other people, but only partial in their fight and mortification against it in their own lives. Another point here, Judas and Demas also had misplaced zeal. They might have been initially zealous for the cause of Christ since it was something new and exciting, yet it did not develop into examination for themselves. They didn't take heed to themselves. You know, sometimes we, we, we become Christians and we're all excited, like Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. Pliable was so excited to go on the, on the pilgrimage with Christian. And he was so zealous. And, and he wanted to go until it got tough, until it got hard. And all of a sudden, he turned back. Judas and Demas also had selfish zeal. They loved the preeminence. They selfishly served God while secretly desiring their own profiting and exalting of their own nature, their own name, their own position. As with so many pastors and self-proclaimed evangelists and theologians today, Judas knew that there was money to be gained by preaching the gospel. So many preachers today look at going into the ministry as a job. It's not a calling, They wouldn't know the difference between a calling and a job. So they put the two together and they take the job. They were selfishly serving God. They knew that money was there to be gained. They did it for money. Judas did it for money. This was a tremendous temptation to Judas because he was of a carnal mind and it's a tremendous temptation for those of the carnal mind. Another point. There's also a zeal which is overt In other words, it's evident only to be seen by others. In other words, Flavel says this, the fleece was fair, but the liver was rotten. And that would show. There's also a zeal, as the Puritans put it, which runs upon others and not upon self. In other words, we're looking at everybody else. The beam is in our eye, but we're taking out the moat in others' eyes. We ought to trust not in man. Judas was an honored apostle. Demas was a trusted co-laborer. Notice here in Micah 7, Trust ye not in a friend, put no confidence in a guide. Keep the door of thy lips from her that lieth in thy bosom. We've got to be careful. We've got to examine ourselves. As the Puritans used to admonish, there's no pureness or sincerity in man. Look only to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to me. Don't look to your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. Look to Christ alone. He alone can be trusted totally. Notice what Peter writes to the beloved brethren. He's speaking of someone he's familiar with and working with and developing the kingdom with, Silvanus. Notice what he says. He's introducing Silvanus to the church. He says, Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you. Now, if we were to stop there, we would say, okay, Silvanus, he's got a good testimony by the Apostle Peter. I guess we can trust him. But he says this. And the reason why he says this is because he remembers Judas. Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, comma, as I suppose. As I suppose. I suppose he's a faithful brother. But you know what? I thought Judas was a faithful brother too. 
Peter knew that no man is altogether faithful. Peter's assessment of Sylvanus is a cautionary note to us. There are those in the ranks of Christendom today who have a great profession, yet some of them may not be Christian in heart and nature. And these are the deceivers. These are also deceived. John calls them antichrists. Paul calls them wolves. And the common denominator of all is a love of preeminence and a love of the world. Not only did Demas forsake Paul and Judas betray the Christ, but they betrayed him for the world. Therefore, both Judas and Demas were earthly-minded, even in their spiritual life and duties. Another point. The question is, how can we know then? How can we know and be warned against falling prey to the flight of Judas and Demas? How do we examine ourselves? Consider some directives. Number one, take heed of resting in outward duties which are but a form of godliness. Lifeless formality is damnation. Now, should you have these duties? Should you be performing them? Absolutely, but don't rest in them. Secondly, labor to see an excellency in godliness, in the life and the work of Christ in the advancement of the kingdom. If we focus upon the Christ and his utter perfection and devotion, we're going to see ourselves in light of that perfection and devotion, and we're going to see ourselves as undone. We're not holy. We still got Adam's nature. We still need to mortify sin. So we reflect upon the Christ. We see him as altogether lovely. We see him as the fairest of men. And we see ourselves poor and needy, needing the Christ every day, every day. It's not interdependence. It's total dependence. And this will cause us to cling more intensely and more closely to him so as never to exalt ourselves. You know, the Puritans used to say, we must cling to Christ, but we also must close with Christ. We cling to him for everything that we are and hope for, and then we close, recognizing that only through Christ can we have any blessing or salvation. Number three, beloved, set your affections upon the things of the kingdom and then labor for its establishment. Whether it's in your personal life or in your family life or in the church life or in the community or whatever, wherever you are, whatever you do, it is for the kingdom, for the kingdom, for the kingdom. Not your kingdom, not your fiefdom, the kingdom. Because that is the enduring kingdom. Your, your kingdom will fail. Our kingdom will fade away. And we, if we're building our own kingdom, we will fade with it. But the kingdom of Christ endureth forever. Number four. As we redeem our lives Godward, and we advance the kingdom of God, we ought to place a high price upon our own souls. Ask the question, what is your eternal soul worth? What are you worth? Will you give it up for worldly goods? Will you give it up for worldly possessions? For preeminence? For the pleasures of sin for a season? What is the worth of your soul? Because when we start to recognize the worth of our soul, we're going to make sure that we take an account of our soul to see that it is highly priced if we do highly price it, and we're going to abstain from that wickedness. We're going to look to Christ. Because what we esteem lightly, we part with easily. So we esteem our souls highly, and then therefore we guard it carefully. 
We shun all vanity. We shun all worldliness. We seek the Lord Christ and we work tirelessly to proclaim the crown rights of the King of Kings. Finally, meditate upon the strictness and suddenness of Judgment Day. Your Judgment Day, not the Judgment Day. Because there will be a day when Christ comes to us at our death. The only way out of this life, beloved, is death. Death is at the door to each and every one of us. We stand on the threshold of eternity. And we need to meditate upon the strictness and suddenness of Judgment Day, one that comes upon us at our death. And this is why we are called to steward our time, because time is fleeting. And we are to redeem the time while we are still on earth, because the days are evil. We have a world to deal with, and we have the worldliness in our own hearts to deal with. Therefore, we must be ever watchful, prayerful and diligent, redeeming the time for the glory of God and for the advancement of His covenant. We have much to learn from Judas and Demas. Therefore, let us learn from them, endeavoring never to be like them. And this we shall do to the praise of the glory of His grace and for the benefit of our own souls. Amen.